All right. Um, good afternoon. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get started. Welcome to the Teatro Mundi Global Street Public Debate this afternoon as part of the LSE Literary Festival. My name is Adam Casa. I'm a research officer here at LSE Cities and one of many people working on the Teatro Mundi project, um, along with collaborators uh, in New York, uh, in Frankfurt, um, and other parts of the world. I want to start first by thanking the organizers and specifically Louise Gaskell and her team, as well as my collaborator, Kira Blakey, who works with me at LAC Cities, and then also to all of you who've joined us here on a relatively bright Saturday afternoon. So thank you. In a minute, I'll introduce our four speakers, but before I do that, I want to briefly sketch for you what Teatro Mundi is and how we came to this topic of the curatorial and the urban. Teatro Mundi Global Street works to create an intentional urban forum whose aim is to bring together people from the spatial disciplines, architecture, planning, urban design, engineering, with people from the performing and visual arts for conversations. And the hope is that through these conversations and potentially shared projects that, they, uh, that might emerge, these conversations can help us to participate with colleagues in a larger political project of reimagining and reinvigorating city-making today. To this effect, the project's experimental, it's open-ended, and it's decidedly collaborative. Now, our director, Professor Richard Sennett, who's here with us today, reminds us that the name, literally the theater of the world, makes a gesture to a Renaissance practice, whereby city-makers might test out certain spatial ideas in the theater before they would implement them in the city a recognition of the relationship between the physical and the social, along with a kind of politics of performance. Over the past year, this group have hosted workshops on ideas like movement, light, sound in the city, and we've worked with people from across all different disciplines, choreographers, acousticians, dancers, sculptors, performing artists, to name but a few, and uh, curators. And so the question of curating spaces started to weigh in our conversation. And perhaps I'll start with an initial definition uh, to throw out of the curatorial. And it actually comes from one of our, uh, one of our uh, speakers today, Maria Lind, though I won't hold her to that definition if she chooses to work with or against it. But in, in a piece in a, selected, uh, a book of her selected works, she writes on the curatorial, and I quote, Today I imagine curating as a way of thinking in terms of interconnections, linking objects, images, processes, people, locations, histories, and discourses in physical space like an active catalyst generating twists, turns, and tensions. Sitting with this definition, one can almost think about uh, in, in, taking out the word curating and inserting the word city. The city as a way of thinking about interconnections city spaces or public spaces or other spaces in between as ways of activating catalysts between social difference, between class, and generating the kind of serendipity that we know comes with the flows of the urban. And so today we explore what might be productive about the relationship between these two terms or not productive. It might not be the, might not be the most productive conversation, but we're going to find out. So let me introduce our speakers. On, my, on, your, on your left, my far right... We have Clementine Delis. She's the director of the Weltkulturen Museum in Frankfurt and a longtime core member of Teatro Mundi since its inception. She studied contemporary art in Vienna 
Social Anthropology in Vienna, London, and Paris, holds a PhD from the School of Oriental and African Studies. The most recent exhibition at the Weltkulturen Museum is called Trading Styles and is innovative in that it, uh, well, she'll speak about it, I imagine, in a bit, but it took four residencies of contemporary fashion designers to work with uh, an ethnographic collection to produce new work. So these new fashion works are shown alongside the ethnographic materials from her collection in a way of producing and reconstituting that collection's materials. Elke Krasny is a cultural theorist, curator, urbanist, and author based in Vienna, and she researches the interrelationships of architecture, urban spaces, issues of cultural identity and representation, engaged art practices and gender. She teaches at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna and recently showed hands-on urbanism at last year's Venice Biennale of Architecture, and we were also lucky to work with her on a number of community forums and public debates that we held alongside the Biennale last year. Next, Maria Lind. She's the director of the Tenste Konstol in Stockholm and an independent curator and writer interested in exploring the formats and methodologies connected with contemporary art institutions. She was director of the Center for Curatorial Studies, the graduate program for the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College, and before that was head of many other art institutions in Europe. And finally, but not last, Justin McGurk is a writer, critic, and curator. Currently, he's the director of the Strelka Press, the publishing arm of the Strelka Institute in Moscow, and the design consultant to Domus. He has been the design columnist for The Guardian and the editor of Icon Magazine. And in 2012, he was part of a team awarded the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale of Architecture for an exhibition he curated with Urban Think Tank. He's currently writing a book about activist architecture and housing in Latin America. So can I please ask us to give a warm welcome to our speakers tonight. So the way we're going to uh, operate tonight is each of our speakers has been asked to prepare a short presentation based on their work, responding to this question for about five or ten minutes. Uh, we'll have each of the speakers in the order that they were introduced speak, and then we're going to reconvene as a panel for a short discussion among ourselves before opening up to hopefully a vibrant debate with you. So without any further ado, Clementine. Is it? Hello, good afternoon. Um, I have a strange feeling as if I'm on Radio 4. But, uh, um, great. Okay. Uh, you can hear me all right at the back. Great. Well, thank you very much, Adam. And um, I am very curious myself about how this debate will, will develop. I have a, um, um, a view of curating that is perhaps um, in certain degrees certain aspects of it is quite unorthodox in that I don't believe that exhibitions are the sole reason why curators work. Um, you can work in publishing, you can work producing events, you can work in a very narrow space before, as, a, as I have done for many years as an artist-to-artist -artist curator, so my responsibility and accountability is only vis-a-vis -vis the artists who I link together and who I work with. Or you can take over a dormant museum, which is what I've done for the last three years, and try to reconfigure, uh, reconfigure its collections for today's worlds. And that is a former ethnographic museum, maybe still an ethnographic museum, something that was developed in, the, in 1904 and clearly um, 
carries many burdens and many problems with it, but uh, underlying all of that is a rather extraordinary set of 67,000 objects and 120,000 um, images and films and photographs. Um, ethnographic museums, in a sense, compound the problems that we find in a city. They compound problems of identity. They, they throw up questions of um, the geopolitical constellation of the worlds during from the period when, when these objects were actually collected and the people who live in cities today who come from different parts of the world spend uh, uh, maybe a different amount of time being sedentary in cities and somehow there is a huge div divide or disjunct between the collections from Oceania, Papua New Guinea, Melanesia, the Africas, the Americas, Southeast Asia, and the people from different parts of the world today who live in Frankfurt. And one of the challenges is to understand how to bridge or to change that disjunct. Um, there is also another area which is a, a kind of a constant tension that has existed since the beginning of the 20th century and uh, still continues today, and that's on the one hand between these museums as intellectual in quotes, scientific research institutions um, that need to work with their ethnographic collections and um, or historic collections, because you could actually bring this out into other areas, other kulturwissenschaftliche, cultural, um, cultural, historical museums, where um, there there is a concern that one is doing that one should do research as a custos, as a curator. Uh, keeper of a collection, but at the same time, um, there is a municipal political pressure to popularize one's findings, to produce public education, to build museums, to build new museums that enable the consumption, the consumerism, the free, the fast flow of people within museums who will take in culture at a fairly rapid rate. Um, and again, this kind of uh, problem uh, between a sort of research-led institution that is a museum with a collection and the demands of popularization are aggravated again by the changes in citizenship that we find in, in, um, uh, in cities today. So now I want to, kind of, what I would like to do very briefly in the five or six minutes that I have left is talk in a, in a sense about the inner world of a museum and the outer world of a museum. Um, and the, the, how these two areas, these inner and outer worlds, exert an influence on what one does. Now, um, in Frankfurt, we've, uh, in a way, found a, a possibility to deal with the, with the collection. And we don't feel that we are representing ethnic identities. It's complex, even if you bring up UNESCO-style wording like source community. Um, so many people have so many different source communities today that it's in some senses nearly a disguise for um, a kind of classification along ethnic lines. So we see ourselves more as a kind of a trading post in perceptions. And trading is a word that fits very well to Frankfurt, but you could say we are a location for the negotiation of perceptions, for a dialogue of perceptions. Various words you could find to, to deal with this issue of exchange. Um, and the trade in perceptions can be understood both in the use of buildings, the actual use of the museum inside, and the articulation uh, of knowledge and production around artifacts, so that you have different networks that are overlapping, 
and that include both in this museum both new research but also, also aestheticized and politicized forms of actual production. So we produce in the museum, we have residencies, we have a laboratory um, and everything that we do runs through this laboratory in order to become something for public display as, or public education as in the form of an exhibition. Now the worlds outside the museum, and I'll show you pictures in a minute, are, as we realize in every city today, split, fragmented, there are multiple source communities, temporary communities that are forging, to quote Saskia Sassen, instruments of political presence and definitely alternative economies. For Stephen Duncombe, who's been heavily involved in the um, um, Occupy movement in New York and theorizes it, urban space today is actually redesigned, repurposed, and becomes a stage for exchange, an exchange, if you like, of, of, of polyvocal commonality. For Teddy Cruz, peripheral communities and urban contexts create new socio-economic configurations through what he calls tactical adaptation and retrofit of existing discriminatory zoning or economic developments in the city. Now that's what Marcus Miesen would call stealth architecture. And this is um, what I want to begin with by showing you a series of photographs that were taken recently by the Italian photographer Armin Linke, who lives in Berlin and works a lot with Bruno Latour, and together with Markus Miesen for Teatro Mundi Global Street, and together with um, a class at the Städelschule in Frankfurt called Critical and Spatial Practice, um, did a series of uh, investigations into stealth architecture in Frankfurt. Um, what you have here, if you, I'm going to show you what they are. So this is firstly um, the launch, in case you in Britain didn't realize, of the new five euro note. It was held, interestingly, in the archaeological museum in Frankfurt. Here you have Mr. Draghi presenting the five euro note. And now a series of photographs which represent, in, um, the, represent the research into stealth architecture. Um, what you see here is a plan of a, a street in Frankfurt, the Münchner Straße, which extends from the main train station through to Willy Brandtplatz, which is actually the location where that famous Euro sign is placed. And the banks, the banks uh, are situated. And as you can see, this um, is a, a kind of a, a mapping of all the activities of different um, back, front, front shop and back shop um, economies along the Münchner Straße. And this is an important photograph. It's, uh, again, in the Münchner Straße. And I'd just like to draw your attention to the signage. It says, um, Buchhandlung, which is bookshop and publishers, uh, insurance company, um, funeral directors, and travel agent and event organizer. So there are four things, definitely, already on the facade, which are going on in this street, in this block of houses. And at the back, there's a mosque. I'll come back to the question of um, a funeral, uh, the funeral parlor in a minute. This is the inside of the mosque. These are all photographs by Armin Linke. And now we come to another area, another type of stealth architecture, and that's actually where the artifacts, the 67,000 artifacts, are held by the museum in locations which usually aren't insured because they don't need to, because no one realizes what is actually behind them. So this is one depot. 
This is what you find in the depot. This is a, um, a plaster cast of a Papuan uh, who was a friend of the museum director in 1904. It has a slightly fetish feel to it because of the bandages, but it's actually a transport modality. Um, and this is a building by Christoph Meckler from 1986 or 1987, early um, work of his. It's the other depot uh, where we have six floors which look like this. In other words, they are highly um, uh, non-emotional, um, con con contained areas. You don't see the objects easily. Um, this, for example, is a series of cupboards where we have all the bows and arrows. We have 10,000 weapons. And this is what happens when you invite people in to talk about the administration of goods and people in this kind of a location. This is a, a recent meeting that we had in Frankfurt. And this is the museum. So we've been looking, I've been showing you the inner world of a museum, the insides, if you like, uh, with the facades, which don't say very much. And here you have the actual museum itself, which are three villas. They are not reconstructions, <laughs> as is the case in most of, of Frankfurt's um, architecture. These are from 1890 to 1904. And um, the, the one on the, on, on the far left is the exhibition villa, the one in the middle is the library with 50,000 books, and the one on the right is the laboratory. The laboratory with residencies, with studio spaces, with a lab where objects can be remediated, reconsidered, reinterpreted, and then an image archive at the base. So we operate a, a form of domestic research. This is the laboratory. The point being that there's no, there's no purpose in trying to rethink the architectonics of these buildings for a type of museum that surely doesn't fit in a domestic space. It might be more interesting to rethink research in these spaces than, the, than to try and, and clad them internally and externally with something that doesn't belong to their historical identity. This is the laboratory indoors. This is last week where we held, um, again, this think tank which lasted three days on the question of administration. Sounds very unsexy but is actually extremely interesting because it's about the containment of the foreign object when it arrives in Frankfurt and the relationship between mercantilism and scholarship. And these are some of the objects that get collected by, or if you like, gathered by guest artists. This is um, a Fijian artist, Luke Willis-Thompson from Auckland. On the top you have um, the, the coffin of a, of a child from Alaska. And below it you find a bent wood um, uh, cradle from Peru. At the back, if you can see properly, if you have good glasses, you will see that there are various um, phalluses. A series of photographs recently found in a crate in the museum that were taken by the tropical um, doctor who, were, um, who was the founder of the museum and who uh, was a doctor on a plantation where there were migrant workers. We're talking Southeast Asia and there were migrant workers from Papua New Guinea and China and different parts of Malaysia, and he used his position as a doctor to do anthropometric photography um, and to record uh, diseases, skin diseases. There you get a, a better idea of what's going on. And the artist on the far right, Luke Willis-Thompson, who's just been in residency, one of the works that he has now finished, in fact the main work for the museum, is to 
Um, every artist who stays with us for six, six weeks receives a funding, quite a large, substantial amount for material costs. The entire amount of this uh, budget for him is now being given to a man who will uh, give it further to a family to repatriate the corpse of a recently deceased member. Um, of that family back to the country of origin. So when you look at the question of the repatriation of objects, suddenly what's happening is that the artist is repatriating the corpse of a person of non-German origin in Frankfurt. And this is the work for the next exhibition. So now I just want to take you very quickly through um, the, the, if you like, the that which can be seen from the outside, in other words, exhibitions, gives you an idea of, of how we work. Um, this is the exhibition trading style. Um, this is the opening, so there are people who come to the museum, but um, uh, we have problems with space, as you can see, and uh, <laughs> at the same time, I don't think we need a new building. I think, actually, um, the dysfunctionality of this, uh, of this of these villas is more interesting, the dysfunctionality of our collections is more interesting than the attempt to gloss over it and just build a new building for the purpose of some greater museological consumption. Um, these are shots through the, through the exhibition space. And um, I think uh, I'm trying to work out how to link now this idea of curation and the idea of the urban. I guess the first thing is obviously to try and work within the sites that already exist. I've given up trying to think that we're going to get a new building. Um, the German ethnographic museum landscape is, is a nightmare. There are uh, dioramas which still exist. There are still the same displays redone um, from 1898 that take you through the different ethnic groups of the world. And at the same time, it's incredibly interesting and controversial to try and remediate these locations, to try and work with these collections, and to do that with the input of non-experts, of people who are not part of museum anthropology, and to, work, work, to try and produce a type of museum university with what is there. In other words, a location that is not entirely dependent on your airport on your Word document, but uses as a, 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 as a potential the, the actual material artifacts that exist. And so this is what actually takes place in the museum. Um, uh, these are the artifacts. All the design of the, of the interiors is done by Matis Esterhazy from Vienna. Um, all the, the displays, so even though we will use a wall to reproduce photography, we have a kind of anti-scenography um, this is work by Buki Akib from Nigeria. So new prototypes based on musical instruments from the, from the collection. This is Perks and Minnie, um, Pam from Australia, who realized that they couldn't put anything on uh, because you're not allowed, you have a, an ideology of conservation that is particularly overwhelming in museums today. So you, if you're a fashion designer, you're not actually allowed to put a hat on. Uh, so you use montage, photographic montage. This is a kind of guise from Munich. And this is cassette player from London, maybe some of you know her, who worked um, a lot around male swagger and initiation rites. This is again Perks and Mini. Yeah, but there's one missing. It disappeared. Never mind. 
So, um, yeah, I'd just like to suggest that that's one way of looking at the relationship between collections, uh, perhaps experimental models of curation, and the problem of the citizens who live in the, in the city around you, and you have to somehow uh, create um, connections, connecting points between them, even though the, the collection that you have bears no actual direct historical, national, or even emotive connection to them. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure being here. Thank you, Adam, for inviting me and also thanking for your introduction. I will um, speak today about urban curating and urban transformation and how those two actually interlink or can be uh, interlinked with each other. And a lot of the words that will be part of my speaking, I think, have already been part of the first talk. So I will be speaking about collecting collections will come into play, but I think in a very different way. And I will also speak about narrations. And the question that uh, drives me, or the question I would like to address is um, whose stories, um, whose perspectives, whose interests are being addressed curatorially, but also by museums when it comes to urban transformation processes. And the word that I find very interesting to use is the word scale. So scale doesn't only come from the architectural profession or the urban planning profession, but I would also like to use scale in thinking about how individual stories or individual agency comes together with um, collective questions of representation and recognition when we look at museum practice but also curatorial practice today. And what I brought with me is... Um, a collection of images that has to do with things I've seen but also things I've curated. The first thing I would like to share with you is a work by Duzi Kadražić. She is a Belgrade-based artist and um, I'll show you what she did. So what we are looking at is um, one of the houses in Belgrade, Ottoman period. Then she takes it all apart. And then all the things that once, once were this house become part of an exhibition in the gallery. So we have the question of scale, but also what she addresses is um, the multi-layeredness of the built environment in Belgrade and its rapid disappearance due to the fact that um, today's predator capitalism and um, developer-driven urbanization actually takes apart a lot of the built urban tissue in Belgrade. And she also lets us think about the fact that when we walk a city, in a way we walk a museum because we walk through the built environment that comes in historical layers. So we could ask, whose house, whose narration, whose fragments, and what does it mean that it still is the house, but not recognizable as a house any longer? 
And from here I would like to jump to the um, late 19th century in the city where I come from in Vienna, where taking buildings apart uh, for the rapid urbanization that went on there in the late 19th century after um, 1860, after the, the wall um, of the fortification and the moats were taken down, which actually led to the collection for the Museum of the History of the City. So what they collected were physical stones, the remnants of things that had been taken down. So I didn't find very good images of this so-called lapidarium. That's why I'm showing you the other side of the transformation, things under construction. And the first thing that came under construction along, along uh, what is known as the Ringstraße uh, was the state opera. So on one hand, there was uh, what I would like to call entrepreneurial urbanism, building the city. And on the other hand, there was a so-called um, urban development fund or city expansion fund. And the first thing they agreed on building was um, this um, state opera. And what we, of course, see is that photography um, comes into play how the construction, the urban transformation, can actually be remembered at this point in time, 1860. And um, this is an image of 1873 when the city of Vienna hosted a World Fair. And I chose this because um, there was a private association of photographers, photographers um, established that documented the entire building process of this World Fair. So they actually documented um, the city in transformation and in 2004, I was invited by the Technical Museum uh, in Vienna, um, which have all these 2,000 images of this um, association today. And I was the first curator to work with this historic uh, collection of images. And what you can see is only what you can see through the images. So the point is, I cannot see 1873 in any other way than through these images and through text. There is no other way to enter this space um, to produce a narration or a collection. But in combining the written texts, the catalogs, and the images, one can find out the gaps, what has not been documented via these um, photo photographic images. And now I want to um, jump to a more recent uh, curatorial project that Adam has already mentioned in his introduction, Hands-on Urbanism, 1850 to 2012, where I looked at informal incremental urbanization processes under the focus of uh, urban farming and urban gardening. But what I want to point out here today is that the two case studies I'm, I'm really briefly introducing now both have to do um, with the fact that the stories of urban transformation processes, this one is in Hong Kong in the New Territories, had neither been documented nor been narrated or researched before I went there as a curator to do research there in the field. And uh, in this case, in Mapopo village, I worked together with a local group of um, activists, uh, urban gardeners, urban farmers who resist um, the developer pressure of uh, three developers that have bought 80% of the village's um, land already. And uh, we were also able to find um, the person, um, Mr. Leung, who was actually the one who built together with the local inhabitants um, the 200 houses in um, 
this rural community and uh, he learned building in Malaysia where he uh, was working um, at the time when Malaysia was still part of the Commonwealth. So he was one of uh, these um, subjects that moved through the Commonwealth and actually learned building there from a um, Hong Kong architect who built for the um, expat Chinese community in Malaysia. And we did interviews with him and documented him. And this uh, takes us to um, 1947 in uh, a city in northern Germany in Bremen, where after the uh, Second World War, every tenth person in the city didn't have a home. And what they did was uh, take over um, allotment garden and start informal building there. And again, together with a, a group of local historians and activists, we started documenting this um, history uh, of the place and uh, find people who still live there and are now allowed to live there till they die. So that's what it's called, the law. But no um, future new residents will be allowed to move in there because they wanted to turn back into gardening and not living in the allotments. And now I'm coming a little closer to this intersection of words because it's a literary festival and I kept asking you how broad is, is literature defined in this context. And this is a, a, a project I worked on with the women of the downtown Eastside Women's Center in Vancouver. Um, it's a space that was founded in 1973. And um, the downtown Vancouver is a pressure cooker of gentrification, um, a lot of poverty, a um, lot of violence. Uh, most of the women at the Women's Center, it's a shelter where you can go during the day but not at night. They are Cree, uh, but also other First Nation women's and Chinese women. And uh, what we did is um, a mapping of their archive. But when I started working with them, they told me that they didn't have an archive. So what we did together is look for um, the newsletter they have been publishing um, monthly ever since their inception in 1973 and then together with a group of 12 women from the center we took out 250 quotes as a timeline of demands they had made onto um, society, onto themselves but also political demands that then became a text-based installation first at the O'Dayne Gallery where I was invited as artist in residence and it then moved to the space of the women, which I should say, having been at the gallery at this interface um, between the urban space outside and you could say the urban space inside, it brought in a lot of people, um, but it also brought in male visitors and I point that out because the Women's Center is open to women and transgender people but not to, to men in the community. So it was also a way of making um, things public to a community um, at large. And the last thing I want to share with you has very much to do with writing and very much to do with what one finds in public space. And it's a project I've never spoken about before, but a project I have used very much to write texts with it. So in, two, in 2004, so um, almost 10 years ago, I started um, collecting informal urban messages wherever I go. And um, what I look at is uh, not graffiti, but it's um, stickers, things on cardboard, things on paper, 
um, stapled, glued, um, so all kinds of ways how you can physically, materially connect what you write in your messaging system to the surfaces of wood, concrete, um, and whatnot, other surfaces. A lot of it can be found on urban infrastructure, actually, lamp posts. I mean, you know this. When you read the city, you see these things. So what we're looking at here is 2011 Los Angeles vintage clothing sale, um, a lot of garage sales, yard sales, so something that is very typical. You could say you can read through these. Bathroom for customer only, more and more, so that people who were not paying customers are not allowed to come in to use the bathroom. And the year I was there, um, foreclosure, you could say. So you can read um, the contemporary urban condition, I would argue, through these informal messages. And the last one, the last image is from 2007. Um, in Paris, and it stands for Immigrant Labor and the Informal Labor Market, and it's a young Polish woman in search of work, and um, this is the services she offers. And with this um, ongoing collection, which I will want to stop next year and then turn into a book, otherwise you don't ever stop. And that's something I think we're curating and editing sort of come together, because at some point you have to stop which I will do now. The fundamental metaphor in Marie-Louise Aikman's work is theater, role-play, masks, cross-dressing, and set design. The life as theater, if you wish, if not the world as theater, whoa. This should come as no surprise, as Marie-Louise Aikman is, after all, the current head of the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm, and since the mid-1970s, director of a dozen films and three TV series. But even in her narrative, pop naivist paintings from 40 years ago, the compositions are theatrical, often involving scenes with characters, be they people or objects, whose bodies are both sexual and intellectual. Most of the time, the characters are engaged in relationships in which unexpected, even remarkable things happen. Since her debut at the Gallery Carlson in Stockholm in 1967, Ekman has responded to the popular culture of the post-war Swedish social democratic society called the People's Home. She did so from both a young woman's perspective and from a child's. Her repertoire was wide already then. Labels on jars, comics, satirical political drawings, and fashion accessories are all included in her special mix of naivism and pop combined with surrealistic elements. She elevated the styles and colors of a girl's room to an aesthetic and made tinkering with things into a method. 
You get to do what you want is repeated several times by the little girl in Ekman's short and melancholic film Mother, Father and Child from 1977 when she's had enough of her tired and distracted parents and her frustrated grandmother. The film covers 24 hours in a family's life as seen from the position of a little girl whose strong will is pitted against a tired mother and a father who drinks on the sly. Today, Marie-Louise Ekman is a public artist, someone who is even a celebrity in Sweden and whose voice is taken seriously in public debates. Internationally, however, she is a blank slate. Encountering contemporary art within the so-called theatrical turn over the last decade has often made me think of Ekman's oeuvre and how unique it is. Like a proto-bad girl who does what she wants, Ekman is even able to claim that her work is actually documentary. With the exhibition Doing What You Want, Marie-Louise Ekman, accompanied by Sister Corita Kent, Mladen Stilinovic, and Martha Wilson, at Tensta Konsthal in Stockholm in the fall of 2012, a substantial body of her work from the late 1960s until the late 80s was presented within an international perspective for the first time. Everyday surrealism, commercial aesthetics, cross-dressing and political satire occupied other artists during the same period, but in other places and in different contexts. Unbeknownst to each other, they partook in related challenges to the society of the majority. At first glance, the work of Ekman, Sister Corita, Stilinovic and Wilson looks disparate. On closer inspection, though, the work turns out to share some basic attitudes, rather than being stylistically affiliated with one another. They have all gone their own way and done what has been necessary for their own artistic development rather than following an expected path. The personal, how you live your life, has become political for each of them and they share a non-conformist anti-authoritarian stance. In various ways, they have also facilitated other people's work whether through running a non-profit space uh, and thereby providing a platform, or through teaching or publishing. While they share several traits, Sister Corita, Stelinovich, and Wilson each also has something distinct in common with Ekman. For example, the embrace of visual seduction in popular culture in Sister Corita's work, the attention to and manipulation of language in the case of Stilinovich's uh, work, and role play and gender transformation in uh, Martha Wilson's oeuvre. To emphasize such individualism today might seem untimely. However, the insistence on not adhering to the norms of the day shared by all these artists is a reminder of the possibility to go against the grain of the dictates of our time, for instance, the extreme individualism of neoliberalism. To do this exhibition at Tensta Konsthal in the Stockholm suburb of Tensta was important. For the reasons just mentioned, but also to work with an artist who has been highly influential on younger generations and who is considered one of the most important artists in the country and to contextualize her work internationally while at the same time introducing internationally known artists who are virtually unknown in Sweden. Uh, seminars and a publication produced as part of this exhibition are dealing with all this in a more scholarly manner. 
But now, back to Tensta. It takes 20 minutes on the subway to get to this place from the city center. Uh, it's a late modernist housing estate, which today is home to approximately 20,000 inhabitants, 90% of whom have a translocal background. The Konsthal was founded in 1998 as a grassroots initiative led by an artist who had been active in the area for a while. It is a private foundation uh, that gets most of its financial support from the city of Stockholm and the state of Sweden. The exhibition space, which you see here, is a former storage space, approximately 700 square meters, underneath a very modest shopping mall, literally next door to the subway station. Today, the staff consists of five full-time positions, plus hosts and hostesses who work on, a daily, on an hourly basis. Uh, with a yearly budget in 2012 of uh, approximately 800,000 uh, pounds and a rent of approximately 150,000 pounds, the Constal is severely underfunded and in a downright precarious condition. High expectations on the program further enhance this dilemma. Nevertheless, the Constal is among one of the more stable entities in the area. Tensta was built in the late 60s in the middle of a landscape filled with traces from various periods, burial grounds from the Iron Age, runestones, and as you can see here, a medieval church. And uh, the estate of Tensta is part of the so-called Million Program. Between 1965 and 1975, one million housing units were constructed across Sweden in order to come to terms with the housing problems which the country had suffered until then. And Tensta has become the Million Program area. And more or less, everybody in Sweden not only knows about this place, but also has an opinion about it. It is known as a ghetto, which is dangerous and unattractive. Um, since uh, it was built, it has become a transitional area, which from the 70s onwards is closely connected to migration patterns in Sweden, and therefore also geopolitics. Political refugees and other migrants from southern Europe and Latin America in the 70s, from Iran in the late 70s and 80s, Turkey and Iraq in the 80s, Somalia and Bangladesh in the 90s, and so on. Until recently, the circulation of inhabitants has been unusually high, but due to the current housing problems in Stockholm, it's extremely hard to get an apartment unless you purchase one. Even Tensta has stabilized, and people stay longer than before. So, a few things stand out with Tensta. It's a residential area. It is dominated by people of color. The unemployment is higher than average in Sweden, and the average income is lower. Many activities are run as projects, and even the more continuously operating institutions, such as the library, schools, medical centers, and the local city administration, tend to move uh, and or to reorganize. So here we are. This is the sign that you see when you exit the subway station. An embedded art center operating in the midst of a fabric of day-to-day -day life in an underprivileged part of a segregated city that is the capital of one of the still wealthiest countries in the world. A country which used to be a social welfare state, but which has undergone radical changes in the last 30 years and which today is at the forefront of many neoliberal experiments. 
So what are the implications and results of working with contemporary art here? How to make sense of contemporary art and an art center in this context? Dealing with this has challenged the staff uh, to consider issues of inhabitation, embeddedness, and autonomy anew. None of this is new or even very complicated. It's not rocket science, really, but rather a case of considering the large and the small aspects of what we do. And it should be mentioned also that the funders, specifically the city of Stockholm, require that the Konsthall is active and visible locally in Tensta, and that we work a lot with children and youth. As Tensta's public space is clearly male-dominated, we have decided to pay special attention to girls and women in our work. So it was clear to me when I took the job two years ago that instead of being organized as a project, Tensta Konstal needs to become an institution to make it sustainable, a place where long-term planning is possible. Of course, this is especially significant in a place where most everything else is run as a project. Sometimes I think of this as a process of becoming simply part of the local infrastructure. One step in that direction is to try and be a sort of local player, to form part of the social and even economic texture on site. This is what I mean with being embedded. Inhabitation implies a further development, making the embeddedness more intensive, for example, with more and better connections with the neighborhood. In this way, it is both quantitative and qualitative. In the past, I've thought about some of those things in terms of context sensitivity. So instead of site specificity, context sensitivity. Translated into day-to-day -day activities, this involves, for instance, running a cafe in a neighborhood where you can buy coffee and tea in a few places, but where there is no cafe as such. As Tensta Konstal is so small, we cannot run it ourselves, but have outsourced it to a local inhabitant, Jafar Mokhtar. Not only is he an excellent cook, but he's also pulling in his network. And today the cafe is our most important point of mediation. The first thing you encounter upon entering the premises, and I dare say, a welcoming feature. Like most other art institutions, the art-focused visitors enjoy having a coffee or lunch in conjunction with their visit. Most visitors who come solely for the cafe, like the fruit and vegetable vendors uh, next to the subway, don't enter the big exhibition space, at least not during the first visits. And I think this is fine to be a modest but nice place to go for a coffee or a bite. We are, in other words, providing a function for which there is a certain local need. And the cafe is the most important point of mediation in one more way too, namely that one of our mediators, one of our staff members, spends more time helping Jafar and his team with permits, uh, teaching them how to write an invoice, interpret the rules of the health and safety agency, etc., than on anything else. Through the art camps, together with several of Sweden's most interesting artists, the Konstal gives children and young people between the ages of 10 and 19, opportunities during school breaks to investigate exciting subjects and various art techniques. And these are done during the day because um, a lot of kids in the area are not allowed to stay overnight somewhere else, so we have adjusted to those conditions. During a concentrated period, artists who are teachers at different art schools uh, 
each work with a group of up to 12 children. And uh, here you see the art camp that happened during the fall holiday at the time of the, the Doing What You Want exhibition with an artist whose work deals a lot with alter egos, and her most famous alter ego is as Miss Universe. A very simple strategy that we have been using in order to get to know our location is to systematically seek out as many local organizations and associations and institutions as possible. This might look like outreach, but it is more about creating a community of concern. We ask if we can come for a visit, sometimes in the form of us having staff meetings there to learn about their activities. We also tell them about what we do and end by asking how the Konsthal can be meaningful, relevant, and even useful for them. Some of them respond instantly. Others take their time, while others don't get back to us at all, as you can imagine. A case where there was a distinct desire on the part of those we visited was the Women's Center. The Women's Center is a bottom-up initiative with approximately 240 members making up what is said to be Tensta's only multi-ethnic association. They told us that they wanted to make tea and coffee salons in the cafe, making the drinks uh, their own traditional way and serving them in the cafe. This has worked really well and we're having them every other month uh, since uh, last year. And as a result of this, one of the board members of the Women's Center is now hired as a, as a hostess in the reception. The Urban Journey T451 also engaged Tensta as a location, as well as a societal and architectural legacy. T451 was a new commission exemplifying that we also work closely with artists. It was a one-day project in May 2012 by Dominic Gonzalez-Furster and Ari Benjamin Myers, which took its inspiration from Ray Bradbury's classic sci-fi novel, Fahrenheit 451. In particular, its filmed version by Truffaut, with music by Bernard Herrmann. And maybe you remember that in a future society where the only communication is made through TV and images, literature is regarded as dangerous for the unified community and has been classified illegal. The printed word is uh, now actively searched for and destroyed by firemen who, instead of putting out fires, burn books to prevent disillusioned human conditions. Dominique Gonzalez-Furster, who for years has been intrigued by Fahrenheit 451, found unique environments in Stockholm where a performance could be realized. Starting in the city center, the audience was led on a journey with scenes played out in the underground and at different locations in Tensta. Live music, choreography, readings, and performative elements were introduced to the familiar urban environments, allowing the audience to experience the places as if they were taken directly from Truffaut's film. And unavoidable questions here were, is Bradbury's story still relevant to our information-driven society today? Can ideas in the classic story be traced and connected to the chosen environments in the walk? How can altered details, sound, and small gestures break a routine perception of the everyday? In this case, of course, all through art. T451 was a sneak preview of the project Tinsta Museum, 
um, or what is cultural heritage, which will actually start in October and which will run until May 2014. Tensta Museum explores the emergence, use, and meaning of the notion and phenomenon of cultural heritage in relation to increasingly prevalent extreme right-wing claims on history and precisely in the form of cultural heritage. So we're taking Tensta as a starting point and working closely with a group of artists, researchers, and philosophers, including Boris Buden, stealth architects, and Ahmed Ögut, and Tensta Museum seeks to evoke history and memory in this location, which is unusually layered and complex. Finally, we are not alone. Cluster is a network for small visual arts organizations in residential areas in the peripheries of major cities. We are all small to medium-sized operations focused on commissioning and producing contemporary art, And the type of art that is produced is often experimental, process-driven, and involves research. The collaborations are carried out with local as well as international artists. And producers of works that are anchored in the local context, the members of the staff of the various institutions and organizations, actively pursue an enhancement of the relations between the local community and the organization. And actually, this morning, I just flew in here to London from Tel Aviv, where we had a meeting at the Israel Center for Digital Arts in Holon, outside of Tel Aviv. And these meetings are extremely productive, I have to say. So my last minute here is to say that the way we're working in Tensta Konsthal is to have an art-led and investigative program which seeks to participate in discussions about and formulations of contemporary art and curating nationally and internationally. Simultaneously, we're trying to mediate this program in ways that can be meaningful and relevant in Tensta, retaining, attempting at retaining the respect for the art and the people involved alike. Artistic and curatorial conditions of production, infrastructural concerns are coming to the foreground as we are in the midst of a paradigm shift for the cultural economy, are at the core of what we do, as are issues of articulation of different kinds. The how of things, which actually seems to be the big question of the 20 teens in Cairo, in New York, and in Tinsda alike. Identifying groups and individuals that have a common interest or a shared concern with the art and the artists on board is essential here. To form new alliances. This means not thinking in terms of an audience or even a public, but tailor-making each mediation initiative to the project in question as well as the groups and individuals with whom we want to work. Thus, we are producing a sort of third space between art and the people engaging in the projects. Thank you. very nice to be here. Um, I'd like to start by saying I am not a curator. Uh, I'm not being falsely modest. I've curated one thing in my career, and it was last year at the Venice Biennale. It was a show called Torre David Gran Horizonte, 
I'll tell you a little bit about it, and then I'll make a few comments about curating more generally. Um, the theme of the last year's Venice Biennale was common ground. When I heard that, I felt I should propose something, because I've been writing a book about Latin America, about Latin American cities, and about a certain way of practicing architecture and urbanism there, which I'm still playing with the idea, but it is, is a kind of activist form of practice. Um, when I went to Caracas, it seemed like the obvious thing to focus on for this show was the Torre David, which is, I can figure out how to scroll, it's a skyscraper in Caracas, um, 45 stories high, squatted by 3,000 people. It was built as a financial, as a, as a would-be bank, banking center uh, in the mid-90s, and it was never completed because the developer died. It was uh, dormant for about a decade until it was gradually occupied. Um, what was the point of showing this at the Venice Biennale? Well, I mean, several, several reasons. Uh, one was to be slightly disruptive in the kind of hallowed halls of the, of the Arsenale, where the high culture of architecture congregates every two years to kind of, you know, yes, critique itself, but also to pat itself on the back. Um, the theme being common ground, I mean, I felt that um, the important thing to address here was not this idea that the Biennale was exploring, I felt, about uh, finding a common ground within the architecture community and a common language, but really looking from inside architecture out to find a common ground between architecture and urban design and citizens and policymakers and the people who hold, hold the keys to the city. Uh, not, not playing happy families with architects themselves. Um, so here's this skyscraper. I'll just flick through some quick images. It's, it's a, it's a, some people call it a vertical slum or a vertical village. You can see the kind of vernacular inhabitation of, of what should be uh, a corporate edifice, you know, postmodernist uh, uh, mirrored glass. Uh, this is the gym on the 28th floor. Uh, this is the staircase. The definition of a skyscraper is really a uh, structure around an elevator shaft. Uh, there's no elevator in this building, and people live up to the 28th floor. So can you imagine going up and down 28 stories a day, several times a day perhaps even, um, inhabiting a, what, what would be an office plan layout? Um, some of the apartments are very ad hoc. Some of them are much more uh, middle class, really, depending on how to what extent people invested in the, in the idea that they would actually be staying in this, in this, uh, in this building or, or whether they feel they're going to be kicked out any time. There are shops. There's all the kind of infrastructure you'd expect of a, of a, of a village, except it's vertical. Um, it's a very, that, that shows you where the shops are, actually, the red, the red boxes. Every, every couple of stories, so you don't have to go all the way down to the street when you need a bottle of milk. Uh, sports the water system, uh, this is a community meeting. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm skimming this because I don't want to dwell on this too much. Uh, it's a dangerous place. I don't want to uh, romanticize it because, you know, one of the ideas of showing it at the Biennale was this idea of, of a symbol of, of uh, corporate exclusivity and the neoliberal city, in a way, being subverted into a symbol of redistribution. Uh, of what I was proposing, common ground. It's, so, as I say, I mean, you know, in a way, it's, it's a wonderful, um, 
wonderful story, this idea that people who normally inhabit the barrios on the edge of the city can suddenly have this kind of penthouse living. It's not an ideal place, as you can tell. I mean, this beautiful picture of a kid skating within inches of a 28-story drop. Uh, what is this Gran Horizonte? Okay, well, it's several things. It's this Grand Horizon is... Uh, I've got ahead of myself. Well, it's, it's a restaurant. It's a restaurant in Caracas. Um, this idea, what I wanted to explore with my one attempt at curating was this idea that if the theme is common ground, you're not just going to illustrate that theme by making it the content, but could the show itself be a form of common ground? We've all been to architecture shows, I'm sure, and shows about urbanism that we felt struggled, really, to, to create a common experience. Um, and we really wanted to explore this idea that, that, that an exhibition could be a really social space, especially in a place like what I call the hallowed kind of ground of the Arsenale. Could we be a little bit um, disruptive in that context? And we thought the best way to create common ground is actually food, that food is, and eating is a great way of um, creating a social bond, really, between people and, and a place where you can share ideas as well as, as, well as eat. So there's a restaurant in Caracas, serendipitously called Gran Horizonte, where we ate many times with my colleagues, who I should mention at this point, called Urban Think Tank, who are the ones who did the research into the tower and who I invited to Venice to, to um, display the research. So we ate there many times, and, and we, we, it, it's a weird postmodern affair uh, with this kind of you know, Memphis-style cow pattern. Um, but nothing somehow happens by coincidence. I mean, the Grand, Grand Horizon for Urban Think Tank, and for me now, refers to something bigger than a restaurant. It's really many things. I mean, it's the view from the tower to the edge of the city where these people would ordinarily be living in slums like this, uh, Petare, on the, on the edge of Caracas, probably the biggest slum in the world, actually. Um, so it's this idea that somehow they've elevated their social status by leaving the, the periphery and finding ground in the, in the center and, and living in this slightly precarious kind of penthouse-style living. It's a weird paradox. Um, but the, the, the Grand Horizon is also a general principle of the global south, of the, the, the billion people living in slums in the global south, looking north to the northern economies and what Teddy Cruz would call the, uh, the architect, Mexican, uh, Guatemalan architect, that was mentioned earlier, would call the political equator, the dividing line, really, between um, the economies, of the, the kind of wealth and abundance of the north and the scarcity of the south. So we decided to bring food to the Biennale, which is a, as a curator or, as, you know, is it, well, it's something that no curator would ever do, let's put it that way, because they're too smart. They would know that it's, it's too difficult to do that. They wouldn't waste their time with it. Um, I was naive enough to think it was doable, and, and about a, you know, a week before we opened the show, we realized it was doable, so it was a very uh, nerve-wracking experience. But uh, we decided to create a restaurant. We decided to, to display the, the, the Torre, but as a restaurant. Now, there was some confusion about this. In a good way, in some different interpretations, people thought it was a restaurant in the Torre. It wasn't. It was a fictional space where we collided a restaurant with a vertical slum, effectively. And we wanted it to be social and dynamic and a place to uh, discuss this phenomenon. Uh, 
And it was, and it was, it was well-received, and it won the Golden Lion, etc. Um, but that's all I want to say about oh, food. Yeah, that's what we, you know, it was, it was like a cafeteria, really. Strange experience in the Biennale. Um, we incorporated the, the debate that was going on in Venezuela at the time, because this exhibition was highly controversial in Venezuela. It was in all the papers. The, the kind of elitist architects of Venezuela were all up in arms about it because they thought we were, being, we were supporting the Chavez regime. There was an election looming. They wanted to see Chavez out. Um, they thought that we were advocating squatting and they are worried about private property because they're all terribly... Um, you know, the, that architecture uh, community is, is kind of rather well healed. And uh, we tried to incorporate the debate into the show. Um, but that's, that's enough about the exhibition. Um, what I would like to say is a few remarks about curating more generally. Um, there was a show at the Breda Museum, the Graphic Design Museum in Breda in Holland, in 2009, called Me, You, and Everyone We Know is a Curator. I didn't see the show, um, but the title resonated with me at the time because I did feel that, and it's been going on for several years now, of course, that there was something in the air that, in a way, one, one of the ways of kind of defining this particular moment is through the rise of the curator as uh, a prominent cultural figure. Um, and I think the best person to uh, personify that is uh, a guy called hans Ulrich Obrist, who you probably know is director at the at the Serpentine Gallery, and he uh, embodies this notion of the curator as literally ubiquitous, literally everywhere, in every city, in, in every week, uh, in every bookshop, with a new book every week. Um, and for a long time, he's kind of represented to me a form of what some, some people call post-critical culture. Uh, why post-critical um, I don't, want to, I don't want to use that term actually uh, in a pejorative sense because I don't want to suggest for a second that, that curating can't be critical. It is highly critical. Uh, but more in terms of his cultural output, he's famous for an enormous series of conversations published in big fat books. And they're, they're wonderful things. I, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in conversations. Uh, but there's a big difference between writing and critique and conversation. And, um, and a big difference between Create, the creation of books in traditional terms and um, basically recording your life and then transcribing it and publishing it on a weekly, monthly basis. Um, so um, I do believe that, I mean, th there is a kind of crisis of criticism going on. Not that there isn't a lot of good criticism about. There is, if you know where to find it. But the, it, it, it's cropping up in, in strange new places, not so much in the mainstream media anymore. Um, there's been a shift with the internet um, to a less critical culture. I think we do have at the moment what I would call an economy of Facebook likes, where you know, that is what stands in. You know, the kind of popular rewarding of something with likes has stood in, in a way, for the traditional relationship of the critic to culture. Um, so the rise of the museums, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer and a, and a journalist and a critic, and um, looking at it from that perspective, I'd say the rise of the museums, of museums and galleries, or uh, what you might call the culture-industrial complex, is um, in inverse proportion to the demise of journalism and um, the media and publishing as uh, viable industries. 
I can't explain why there's this kind of inverse relationship, and I, I'm not even sure, I'm, the other members of the panel may disagree with me totally. Um, I can't explain why there's this kind of weird rise and fall going on, since both, uh, both of these media are essentially analog still, and I even wonder, in fact, whether the demise or the seeming demise of journalism and, and publishing is or should be a warning to museums, because uh, when the city is essentially uh, a 3D database stored in the cloud and viewed through Google Glasses or whatever uh, devices we're using when this happens, um, I wonder whether people won't find it a little bit quaint, in fact, to go to a museum and experience you know, objects, real reality, real objects in the round. I mean, I'm just speculating. I, I, that, that may be nonsense. Um, but I do, I do feel there's been a rise of the curator and the fall of another cultural figure, which, the editor. Um, the internet is not particularly selective. It gives us everything and allows us to be our own editors, in theory. Um, and I think that's going to change. Uh, I do believe that that relationship of trust that we have with the editor historically in terms of selecting and shaping things for our you know, enjoyment or our, our uh, edification is going to migrate to the internet as, um, as it becomes more necessary to find um, places that we trust in terms of accumulating ideas and, and content. Now, some of this is semantics, I think, because, um, you know, curating, like design, uh, is a very elastic term. And I think... Um, I think, I think we can use it in all sorts of ways, but if I apply it to my own work, uh, I'm not sure how helpful it is to me, actually. I mean, one of the, one of the questions uh, that posed by the, the, this event was, is the architect or urban designer a curator? Um, now, I'm a fan of multidisciplinary and, and kind of interdisciplinarity, and I, I don't want to pigeonhole anyone, least of all myself. Uh, but when I think about my own work, I, I'm doing a book at the moment about Latin America, about Latin American cities, um, and it, it, it focuses on a particular generation, including people like Urban Think Tank and people like Teddy Cruz, who, um, whose approach to the city and to architecture is what I would call activ activist, activist architecture, by which I mean simply uh, the architect having to play the role of the catalyst in self-initiating projects in the city, in, 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 de in deprived parts of the city, not ordinarily probably slums, uh, where the state is absent or has been absent. Uh, it's not the traditional role of, of working for a client. It's the kind of creation of a client, really, um, and the initiation of, of um, cre creating a, a, the, the, um, the means necessary to make an intervention in the city and, and to improve a community's life. Um, now, I like this idea that someone raised earlier of the curator as a kind of networker, and I feel that there is some parity there with this idea of the architect, the activist architect, as uh, a networker, as a catalyst, as someone who has to bring together the forces of, of politics or the dark matter of policy with the communities who need their help. Um, and I think there are key people in this, in this book relevant to the idea of curating as performance, there's a, mayor, a former mayor of Bogota, a two-time mayor of Bogota called Antanas Mokus, who did incredible things in the city in terms of uh, urban pedagogy. 
including bringing, um, bringing mimes to direct the traffic, you know, making uh, gestures himself as a mayor, which were much more like performance art than politics. Um, I'm really running out of time, so I should just say that editing, I think, is, is an equally viable way of uh, approaching the city, and, and, and in some ways one that needs to be nurtured. And I recently, um, I wouldn't say curated, but edited a series of, of essays on the city for uh, Stroker Press, which is a, a digital press we just founded for the Stroker Institute in Moscow. And these are like five, ten, twenty thousand word essays about the city or ideas related to the city and a return to kind of long-form writing and, and critique to kind of counter that, that what I called earlier the, the, the uh, culture of the economy of Facebook likes. And uh, the impetus for this was really to, to uh, try and do something for, about urbanism that was popular but also had the kind of long-form reading experience appeal of something like the New Yorker or the London Review of Books. They're all in English and Russian. And I began with the question, you know, in a way, if, if Walter Benjamin was to write his essays about Berlin or Moscow today, where would he publish those? And I didn't see a natural fit for them. And the idea was to try and come up with a, with a series of essays that, that might be the kind of place where he would uh, publish writing on the city. Uh, that was the first series I just scrolled through, and there's a new series in development. But I'll stop there and we can have a discussion. Thanks very much to all of our speakers, and I think we're, we're very, very close to out of time, so we're going to forego a conversation here. I think we've had a conversation here for quite a bit of time, and um, in the last five or ten minutes, I want to try to pull together three or four questions from you in the audience that we can pose. We'll collect them as a whole, and then we'll have a kind of final response uh, to the end. So I'll open it up to the floor uh, for now. So is there anyone who would like to ask a question? Yes. Uh, hi, uh, a question, comment to the McQuirk. I'm an architect from Caracas, and I used to work very closely to, um, you know, Torre de David, and it's become a symbol of many sorts. I mean, the the polemic right in Caracas when he won the Biennale Prize, it went beyond. Uh, the architects, because we do have um, an issue of how the city has been built, how Caracas has deteriorated in the last 25 to 30 years. It's not just because Chavez's uh, regime. So the, my question is something that I'm still trying to maybe digest or understand is what is really that tower, what happened there, symbol of, of what is really going on in a city like Caracas within Latin America. Well, beyond all the discourses on, you know, how it's subverting neoliberal order, etc., because when you are in the city, when you live a block from that tower, when you work, three works from the tower, and I was working there when the 
Costa Rican attache was kidnapped and the phone call to ask for ransom came from within the tower. And months later, you see it winning a prize in the Venice Biennale. There is all this sort of thing that goes through your mind and you cannot really uh, separate your view as an architect or as an intellectual from your view as a citizen. So I would really like maybe just to start a bit of conversation on what those mm. other issues that are intangible that go beyond what has been uh, spoke on the media around the tower. Okay, thank you. Can I reply now or are we going to save that for... Let's just quickly save and see if there's any other questions on the floor first at all. Anyone else want to join in? Yes, just at the top. The top, uh, the gentleman at the top and then the, the woman just down here. Hello. Uh, sorry, I didn't really have a question, but seeing as no one else was asking, I thought I'd stick something in. Um, it, was just, it was just more of a point, really, about... Uh, the, you mentioned that, that film, You, Me, and Everyone You Know. Well, you mentioned it in a different title, but the, it kind of referenced that film, uh, You, Me, and Everyone You Know, and then that added to the end of it, is a curator. So I just wanted to kind of bring it back to that film, You, Me, and Everyone You Know, which is the film by... I was just going to look up the name of the director, but I forget her name. But it's a great film about curators, if you haven't uh, seen it. And um, there's that great scene in it where they're kind of... She's looking for an artist in the film, the curator. She says, I need to find an artist. I need to find a woman artist. I really need a black woman artist for this show. And there's something kind of great about that. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the, some of the projects that we were looking at. There's something about curatorial projects that are very worthy sometimes. And I wonder if there's any... If, if curatorial projects... If there's something about curatorial projects which like, has to have that worthiness, um, so yeah, that's my question. Thank you. And then just the the woman just down here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to uh, segue on both of those other comments, really, um, and just make a point that nobody's really talked about the the politics of this and politics and finances. And I think the last comment is exactly that. You know, the art that's being um, championed at the moment, certainly in England, is often art which will fulfil a political brief. And part of that brief, certainly over the last sort of 20 years, has been about giving public a voice and lacking this editorial business that you have been the last speaker was certainly talking about um, but with all due respect you as the last speaker were actually doing something that the first commentator was making a point about which is to to champion for want of a better word, uh, people's distress, um, people from the lower end of society, you know, those who are less privileged, uh, those people who will not be buying art. And art, actually, at the moment, the art that is curated all over the place, is art that follows the market. Lots of comments there, not mm. brilliantly put, but I think this, this is the real anxiety about, yes, we're all curators. Oh, last point, though, actually, I think that... Um, no, but this is important. Julia Payton-Jones is the director 
of the Serpentine. I think she'd be upset not to be credited like that. Right. Co-director is Hansel Orff's Obrecht. Right. Okay, so we'll end with those three questions, but they kind of speak to broader issues. The first one about the ethics of representation, uh, addressed to Justin, but I think present in all of our works uh, across the board. The second was about the worthiness of the curatorial object. Um, And the last, again, a question of ethics vis-a-vis the politics and finance in the art industry today, and maybe a reflection on that in our discussions. So maybe Justin to start off, but I think... Uh, the remainder of the panel to have a, a last word. And very quickly, in, in about a minute each. Yes, I'm very <laughs> grateful to the lady from Caracas for the question and, and very sympathetic to it as well. And, of course, I was skimming unforgivably there. But the point I'm trying to make with the tower is that, of course, there are many ways of reading it as residents or as intellectuals, uh, but there's a very obvious way of reading it, which is as something that's gone wrong in the city. And... Um, that would be the obvious way of looking at it from the point of a politician in Caracas or a resident. But is the question we are raising is, is, another, is there another way of looking at it, which is as a kind of experiment, an urban laboratory of, what, of ways of inhabiting the city that don't involve pushing the poor to the periphery to live in slums and leaving, um, leaving kind of exclusive real estate sacrosanct in the center. The point was to kind of celebrate, yes, there are problems with the slums, okay, the, the, the kidnapping question is a complicated one. He was never there. But um, the point is to celebrate the kind of creativity, in a way, and um, energy of people who can uh, convert dead real estate like that into something genuinely interesting. And we, we are seeing a kind of wave of speculative skyscrapers going up around the world, China. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in China in 10 years' time? And the question is, is this an accidental chance to experiment with how to use those and how to bring people from the periphery into the center. Now, it's not, like I said, I, the, the object was not to romanticize it or to, to claim it as some kind of um, you know, ideal scenario, but it is an opportunity to, to study and experiment with how to reuse um, uh, speculative skyscrapers. Thank you. Maria. First of all, I think that it is much more interesting to think about curating and working curatorially than to focus on the curator. Um, And uh, by looking at the process, uh, by looking at the different house, we of course also need to to think about the outcome and what the different house lead to. I think that's what is productive at this moment. And if we're interested in cultural economy, Uh, commercialization is going on. The art market has boomed in the last 15 years like almost no other market. But at the same time, we have a neo-bureaucratic trend, which is almost on the level of of Soviet bureaucracy, uh, despite the fact that neoliberalism promised us uh, that it should be all smooth and efficient. So both these things affect how the art world and curating included operates today. It's equally about the instrumentalization of public funding along the lines that you described, that there are strings attached to almost any penny that one can get, and then the commercial world uh, affecting in its own ways. But then it becomes interesting with scale. So I was really glad, Elke, that you uh, brought up the issue of scale. It seems right now as if it's either the really big institutions, art institutions, or the smaller ones that actually can function and create 
some sort of space to maneuver. Personally, I'm more interested in the small-scale ones, mm-hmm. and I think they do what maybe you are a little bit asking for in terms of investigating a kind of critical approach. Things happen on scale. There, curating is an applied form, and in London we can think of the showroom, the cluster network that I mentioned. Something is really happening in those places, and... What is very interesting is that the investments and the risk-taking that is going on in those places is then eventually capitalized on by the bigger art institutions and the commercial sector 10, 15 years down the line. So what we need to do also, I think, is to rethink the assessments of what we do. How are things being evaluated? Maybe we cannot avoid the culture of assessment that we're completely embedded in, but maybe we can actually affect how things are evaluated. What kind of values do these smaller-scale institutions uh, produce? Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. Elke? I think I would like to add to what has already been discussed by not just looking at art museums, but maybe a little bit at, um, and I was more speaking to that also, to uh, museums that have cultural historical collections or urban collections or are... Um, museums that deal with the history of cities. And um, interestingly enough, museums that deal with the history of cities in their uh, mission statement um, include the past, the present, but also the future. And I think this brings me back to, to what uh, something like Torre David um, addresses, uh, and I think you haven't really spoken about that. But what are the energy levels people live on in this tower? And in a way, how did they out of self-organization, produce a community there that is actually um, very good for the carbon footprint um, of cities. So what I would be interested in is how can curatorial practice that is out there, that is actually in the field and works with practitioners, with artists, with um, other collaborators, bring something back to the museum um, that inherently challenges the logic of the museum and maybe even impacts on what is collected there um, and not just resides on the curatorial but brings something back into what is actually a collection that I can refer to um, in the future. Mm. Well, I think um, as the first speaker, the last speaker, there's so much here that we could debate around. It's interesting, too, that uh, Maria Lindt was responsible for a very important initiative that took place in a shopping center in Elephant and Castle in, I think, 1998 with Hans Ulrich, and it was called Salon 3. And it was, uh, in, what, why I thought about it was that um, in, your, in your presentation of Tenster Konsthalle, I couldn't get a sense of how embedded you were in the, in the process, how many other people are helping to bring in communities and, and set it all up for you. And, you know, in Salon 3 in Elephant and Castle, these were sporadic moments that took place and people came in and then left again, came in and left again. And so there's this question of the continuity of this kind of process which needs to be looked at, perhaps, The other thing that interests me in terms of scale is um, a a short anecdote. I was recently at a think tank in New Delhi um, about the future of museums. And at this think tank was Neil McGregor, as you know, director of the British Museum, Martin Roth of the V&A, and a group of Indian intellectuals who teach museum studies in the university, as well as younger people 
uh, who were interested in, who were doing museum studies. And um, luminaries, um, a chap called Jane, who many of you will may, maybe have heard of, who set up the Crafts Museum in Delhi, myself and a couple of other people from Germany. And um, there was clearly an issue of... Um, there was a problem there because the larger museums, such as the British Museum, can and Neil, wonderful, brilliant man, uh, can talk about different worlds that he wants to create inside the British Museum. He's so large that if you ask him what his problem might be, he might say that there is this and that problem, but at the end of the day, there is no problem other than a problem that he would have to address to government. When you have a, uh, um, uh, uh, older museums that were set up maybe 40 years ago in um, a city such as Delhi, where at the time with the Crafts Museum you had 50 or 60 crafts people living in the museum, usurping the space of the museum, who are no longer living there anymore, where you have young curators who want to have academic professions but don't relate anymore to the artifacts or to the situation of this dilapidation that is going on in a major museum, in a national metropole, in a, in a, in a, a very powerful country today, then there is a, a discrepancy there which ties in with scale but doesn't justify the problem of scale. And I think that the... Um, if I think of what a young curator could do today and you know, let's be clear about this, the word curator wasn't used in the late 1980s in Britain. You had an exhibition organiser and you had an academic or somebody from a particular field who would go to the Hayward and propose an exhibition, which was then organised. Curatorial practice was far more active in Germany, uh, in Sweden, in, in other parts of Europe, but not in Britain as a research component as a, a thought exhibition, as Latour would call it, or Weibel would call it. And so this, this kind of new breed with its MAs and its courses and its expectancies, 56,000 pounds to do two years at the Royal College of Arts curating course, 56,000 pounds for a foreign student, leads to where? Where do you practice? And so the question is actually not let's downgrade the curators. Let's like always this fight between curators and artists. It's not interesting. The question is more where do you curate? Do you curate in a shopping center? How do you change the use that people make of a museum which is free? It's public. Can you work in there? Can you can you come back to collections that nobody can use anymore like weaponry from the past or folk culture. These are cul-de-sac collections which are fascinating because they demand a new interpretation from us. But we can only interpret them new if we interpret the architectonic space of the museum, museum from the inside out and not from some kind of urban planning project that requires a new place where people can consume different forms of culture. So I, I think one has to be more specific about, mm. as Maria has also proposed, about curatorial, curatorial practice. practice. And I think that's a really good question to end on. Where, where does one curate uh, today? Mm. If I can invite everyone to thank our speakers and to thank you for coming out today. Mm.